Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, Max. Hi, guys. Uh, this week on the show is Anita Hill. Anita Hill. Did not see that coming. Anita Hill is on the show. She just uh, wrote a book. It's called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. And it's sort of a book unlike any we've talked about on the show before. It's reported... Um, it's also personal. She talks about her own story and sort of weaves it through. And then it's also making an argument and trying to inspire people to take action. It's like many, many books in one. It's really ambitious. And I talked to her about the process of writing it uh, and reporting it and how you balance the reporting and making an argument and then also talk to her about this moment in her life. So um, the book coincided with the 30-year anniversary of her testimony in the Clarence Thomas hearings. And I think in some ways it's an attempt to try and make sense of those 30 years and, and to reflect what she has learned over that time. And, and, and the anniversary was also a moment. So um, Pineapple Street, where I work, we put out a podcast with The Meteor called Because of Anita, um, and it featured, among other things, an interview with Anita Hill and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. And then I should also say, because we're here on a podcast, that Anita Hill has her own podcast. It's coming out next year. It's called Getting Even with Anita Hill. So anyway, yeah, it was uh, it was a different conversation than we sometimes have on the podcast. And it was a uh, it was a real honor to talk to her. Regardless of what we're doing on the podcast, we're helped out by our partners at Vox Media uh, it's a new partnership. They help us produce this show. Thanks to Vox. And now here's Max with Anita Hill. Anita Hill, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, there's so much to talk about, but I think we should start with writing because you just wrote this book. What role does writing play in your life these days? Well, it's an important role. You know, it's always played an important role in my professional life. But I, I have to say that I learned to write mostly as an adult. I didn't do much writing in 
college or at, at all. Uh, my writing career started doing legal writing, which is not what I wanted the book to be. Scintillating, scintillating legal writing. It can be really boring and, <laughs> and obtuse and, you know, discouraging, actually. And I didn't want the writing to overcome the stories in this book. And legal writing, you know, like I can tell you that actually my career changed because I realized that if I wanted to address the issues that um, I'm addressing in this book, gender-based violence in, in its many forms, I had to get beyond writing and, and thinking uh, through the lens of legal decisions because the issues were really bigger than that. I mean, they're much more about the way people live and exist. And even the concept of equality, which is where I started out with writing this book, it sounded too much like a legal term. It sounded too limited to really capture what I wanted to do. So I started out with a working title, A More Perfect Equality, and that eventually became Believing. I'm interested in that shift from legal writing to the work you're doing now. Is it, was it hard to make that shift? Well, it's taken me about 30 years. So, <laughs> so, you know, if I had to try to do it in one year or two years, I think it would have been very difficult. But, you know, it, it really, that shift is not just in my writing. It's a shift in my career. It's a shift in my thinking. And so the shift really has taken place over about 30 or so, maybe 25 years, when I decided to leave law teaching in order to pursue issues of inequality um, and gender violence in particular, sexual harassment, you know, intimate partner violence. I wanted to pursue those issues in a much more human, uh, from a human point of view, as opposed to from the point of view simply of the law and what the law does, because I realized that's just not enough. You're writing about very challenging, serious topics. Is the writing itself enjoyable for you? Like the creative work of it? The creative work is enjoyable because it it presents a challenge. And, you know, any lawyer knows that you can tell a story in different ways. And any lawyer knows that how you tell the story can determine what people take away from it and what they're willing to do about it. Hmm. And so when it comes to writing about the topics of violence and harassment and other abuses, you can talk about the statistics, for example, and I have all of the numbers in the book, when you can talk about the um, legal concepts that determine what outcomes of cases might be or how people might be able to get justice. And, and then you can talk about the stories of people's experiences that include any number of experiences. It can include courage. It can include pain. It can include, in many cases, uh, success when they feel as though they have achieved justice. For me, the writing was a challenge because 
I knew that to tell the whole of the stories that you had to talk about all of them. That's so interesting to me. So your approach was like, listen, if you're a numbers person, I'll give you the numbers. If you're a legal person, I'll give you the arguments. And if you're a story person, I've got the stories too. Like you're like, uh, everything is on the menu in the book, whatever your entry point is going to be. So you can wrap your head around this argument I'm trying to make. I want to give that to you. Right. And, and I really think that that's where breakthroughs come from. I, I don't think they can come through just this sort of linear approach uh, to the storytelling. I think that the issues have to be made real and they have to be made relatable. But then they also, even for the people who are living them, they also have to be grounded in the data and the facts. And, and for people who are looking then to take that and then move to the solution, they need to examine what the legal concepts are or what the structures are that are guiding us or keeping us from moving forward and how to break through those. So yes, I, I, that that part of the writing was really enjoyable. So you, you're telling me that you didn't have moments when you like sat down at your desk in the morning and were just like, Ugh, I've, I have no idea how to get through this section. Well, that's why I said that part of getting there. <laughs> <laughs> when I got there, I was excited. But yeah, there were, I mean, it, and it wasn't even just, I have no idea how to get through it. It's just like, the emotion, um, you, I mean, you really, writing a book, there's a, a, there's a lot of emotional labor in writing a book about hardship and about struggles uh, that seem in some ways to get nowhere. And so I, I think I was benefited because, you know, I grew up, I was born in 1956, and I like to spare people the math. I'm 65. Um, But I grew up in an era of civil rights discrimination, but also civil rights demonstrations Hmm. and civil rights advances and gender rights advances and demonstrations and movements. And so I know that in, in my life, as the youngest of 13 children, who my, my parents were born in 1911 and 1912. So there's this whole history of that my parents themselves experiencing rampant discrimination of both gender and race. And I knew that there was a whole history there of getting through these struggles. So that kind of enabled me to be hopeful and to see that there could be an end but, um, you know, it, it, yeah, there were just times when just the, the, the stories themselves were just heartbreaking. So what I hear you saying is, is that part of the emotional labor is writing a book like this and holding on to, to hope that it can improve. But also, I mean, your story is running throughout this book and, you know, I assume there is not a day that goes by in which you are not asked about the Thomas hearings and all that has happened for you since. And you get the sense in reading the book that you have done a lot of processing of that experience. But I imagine some of the emotional labor is just telling your own story too. 
Yeah, that is part of it. But I, I, after having received thousands, literally thousands of letters over the past few years, I don't see my story as separate from those. Uh, and the people who have written me don't see my story as separate from theirs. But yes, I, I wanted to process my own story uh, as well as to integrate the whole range of stories into what I see as, as an urgent social issue um, that is not only hurting victims and survivors, but that really hurts their families, their, their colleagues in the workplaces, but also hurts us as a nation. So one of your goals was to fold your story into this larger societal problem of gender violence, to connect your story to stories that maybe aren't as well known or lots and lots of stories that aren't as well known. Do I have that right? You're absolutely right. And, and I was aided by that because, you know, my story occurred in a very public fashion. So the fact that, you know, my, my story was televised, uh, or at least part of it uh, was televised, I think has made it easier for people to understand that it is part of our nation's story. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, 
The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What were your other goals for the book? I wanted to change the way people think about gender violence. I wanted to change uh, our cultural responses from this almost knee-jerk, immediate dismissiveness and denial response uh, when people claim that they have been violated, either harassed or abused in their homes or abused on the streets or um, at at a a college or university. Um, I wanted to change the idea that these problems are personal problems and best worked out alone or with the two parties involved. So, for example, when people think about intimate partner violence, you know, it's so very often they want it to be sort of contained as an issue of a, of a private interaction that, you know, the two spouses need to address. And they don't see it as hurting our entire society. And I wanted to change that. And, and I wanted to change it so in such a way that thinking, in such a way that it, it sparked action. It's a pretty big goal. And it lines up with what feels to me like a really broad argument that you're making in the book, which is connecting gender violence to all of these aspects I mean, basically, the book is making the argument that it's baked into the fabric of nearly every aspect of American life. Yeah. It's so big. How do you practically tackle something so big? Once I started seeing all of the connections and and seeing the reality and the statistics and the the numbers and, and the inadequacy of the legal processes and the private corporate processes... For addressing them, then I, I, I understood that there is no other way to tackle it. Uh, you really have to believe, though, that it's possible to, to understand that approach, but only if you are willing to look at the enormity of the problem. You know, I, I guess I could have have chosen to write a story of one particular kind of behavior. Clearly, I could have written about the issue of sexual harassment in the workplace. But one of the first calls that I got after the hearing when I was, you know, had come back to my job at the University of Oklahoma and was trying to get back on my feet and and move through what was a terrible experience in Washington, D.C., uh, in testifying, and, and which, in fact, the terror continued after with threats and people who I knew who supported me lost jobs. I mean, all of this you know, was ongoing. So I was sitting at my desk one day and trying to understand what had happened to me, and I got this call from an individual who... Um, at first, I, you know, I was a little concerned about even listening because I had gotten so many harassing and abusive calls. But 
And this one, I did listen, and it turned out to be a man who described himself as an incest survivor, um, whose first words were, you've opened a whole can of worms. Hmm. And he explained to me that the hearing and seeing the Senate's reaction to me had triggered something in him, his memory of how his parents had responded when he tried to tell them about the abuse he was suffering. And his parents, in fact, rejected his complaint and his claim and sided with the relative who was his abuser. And and he said that it was similar to, you know, seeing the hearings and, and all of dismissals and and denials um, of my testimony. So I, I, I had never thought of my experiences being connected to someone who had been violated as a child by a relative, but he did. And I realized that I was, I was, I was the one that was missing something. And one of the reasons, I mean, maybe the, the biggest reason that I wanted to capture all of these experiences was that I just didn't want to leave anybody behind. I didn't want to leave people out. Who, I, if you write about sexual harassment in the workplace, you're going to capture a lot of people, but you're also going to leave a lot of people out. I imagine that phone call is one of thousands that you have gotten over the last 30 years with people feeling like their stories connect to you. Does that give you a sense of weight? Is, is part of this about once you hear that many stories, you feel a responsibility to do as much as you can to go as broad as you can? Yes. I mean, absolutely, I feel a responsibility because my platform, because of those hearings, is one that those people may never have. Hmm. And it's not that I felt that I needed to speak for them so much as that I needed to create a way for their stories to be told as part of a collective. And I also say that I think part of the reason that uh, people question whether or not I should have sort of limited my discussion or should have really gone in and tried to look at the whole of the problem, I think is because we often, in order to avoid having to address these problems, we sort of pick them apart and try to separate them. But I think really getting to solutions means that we have to look at the commonalities and sort of figure out what they have in common and how we can collectively address them. Yeah, it's almost like uh, medicine's focus on specializations and like no one's treating the whole body. It's all just specialists. Like that's basically what palliative care is, is that you have to treat the whole person. You know, that's, that's, that's a great way to put it, actually. And in terms of prevention, I think something can get lost. And that's, that's definitely where what I think about 
when I think about the issues that, that I raise in believing that if we start to think about the origins of these issues, then we can deal with ways to prevent them from happening instead of trying to address them after the fact. It's so interesting to me the way that you talk about how you want to share these stories, how you want to tell these other people's stories, how you, how you feel a responsibility to use the platform that you have to share them. Because I think that's the way the book reads, you know, is like your story is there, but it's interwoven through it. And, and the way that you write about other people in the book, it's reportorial. Like it feels like journalism to me, like you're, it feels like you went and reported those stories. Does that sound right to you? Like, was there a repertorial aspect of putting the book together? Yes, there was. I mean, it was, I, I, I also wanted to be analytical about them because I think we hear and see so many stories. I mean, think about Me Too movement and the all of the stories that came out and they were all, so many of them were just entirely compelling. But I also think that for people who still don't quite get it, there needs to be some analysis and there and there needs to uh, be some anchoring of those stories and, and connections need to be made. And so I'm not trying to be a journalist, but I am trying to chronicle stories so that because there's so many of them, um, that that's also a way of of convincing people that this is real. If you hear them over and over again, and, and that's, you know, we know that that's the case. Even when we have an individual coming forward, it's, you know, say in the Harvey Weinstein case, if one person had come forward and complained, we wouldn't have had any conviction. But it took literally, you know, scores of people coming forward. And so um, I, that's another, I guess, approach or tactic that I took in terms of writing that I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to tell one or two stories. I wanted people to see how pervasive the problem is through the stories as well. That feels like asking so much of yourself to me, like taking this on in the way that you approached it, given the journey you have been on for the last 30 years. It seems like asking a lot of yourself to be able to write with some distance about all of these other incredibly traumatic stories that are, if not literally, then systemically and certainly emotionally connected to yours. Where does the energy to do that come from? You know, I was actually in some ways energized by the pandemic. I mean, I was in the, you know really deep into the writing during the pandemic. And that whole experience of seeing how different populations were just really hit hard, not only with the disease, but with the economic fallout from from COVID, how, in, in fact, in terms of gender violence, how well, the rates of intimate partner and family abuse skyrocketed, left people homeless, um, without resources and shelters, and they were overcrowded. You know, I, that, that energy to write the book came in part from 
life during the pandemic and seeing George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And so, and, and I think it was a, a moment, um, I, I say 2020 was, yes, it was this moment. It was this, it was a year of turmoil, but it was also a year of clarity for me. Mm. It clarified the need for us as a society to address these lingering issues that get exacerbated by long histories of people experiencing inequalities. So 2020 was clarifying and energizing for you, feeling like you knew what your platform and purpose could do, and this book is the result of that. That makes sense to me. One thing I did find myself wondering, both while I was reading it, but also just hearing you talk about that, like you write in the book about the journey that you have been on and the paths that you were not able to go down because of the decision to testify in 1991. And I've heard you say in lots of interviews, and you write about it in the book, that you don't regret that choice. But I wondered whether, like, on some level, there's any part of you that resents the responsibility that you feel. You know... I, I suppose I would it sounds silly to say that <laughs> no, I don't resent it at all. I, I, you know that that it, there are not moments when I wish that I had had the career that I thought I was going to have uh, doing international commercial law. There are moments when things are very hard if, and I, I, I sort of long for what could have been. But I really do feel that my life now has purpose. And my responsibility really is to live out that purpose as much as possible. The reason that, that this isn't entirely daunting is that I realize that I am one individual and that the issues will not it depend on me entirely, that there are so many people out there working on these issues and that so much it can be achieved and is being achieved. But I also realize that every person who has the opportunity should be involved, and that includes me. Um, and, then, and then when I hear from people who say life has changed, I mean, it... it about 10 years ago, I was talking at a high school, a Votech school in California, and it was we were in the cafeteria, and it was a whole school. And everyone had a chance to talk, so they had an open mic. And this um, young man came to the mic and said, his, his, his question was, how does it feel to know you've changed the world? And that, let me tell you. What a good question. I mean, well, you know, and, and it was, it, you know, I, I don't know that at the time I felt that I'd changed the world, but I, I knew at that moment that I needed to try. I needed to commit to it, that, uh, that 
a generation was expecting the world to change and that if I could, I was going to change something. <laughs> I was going to, I mean, I changed the world, but I was going to make it better for somebody. And so just moments like that, when you hear from people who are so appreciative and who really believe that their life is better uh, because of something I've done, you know, that gets you out of that regret and, and into action. Right. And it's like you're, you know, when you're standing on that stage and you're forced to look at the reality that you could change someone's life, it's pretty hard to put that back in the box after you've seen that clearly. Right. That you could and that there are people counting on you. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. about that moment that you realized that you were just one person or the process by which you realized that because in a lot of ways I think that's kind of the whole thing you know in life is figuring out that you're just one person was there was there a moment when that became clear to you or was it a process how how did you do that work well you know I I, I you know I realized that I was one one person when I was testifying in 1991 but the weight of that I think I didn't quite figure out for a while but along with re- that realization was the realization that there are other people out there working for this they have always been now we know that Rosa Parks started working on the issue of sexual assault of one individual. That was her early civil rights work before she became famous for not giving up her seat on on a bus, a segregated bus. So there have been people in our history, and there are people today, and there will continue to be people. So, yes, I am one person, but I am actually part of a movement. And each of us is is doing what we can in our own way. 
and we're supporting each other. Anita, do you feel hopeful for where this movement is headed? You know, I have seen so much change just in attitudes and in thinking in the past 30 years. I've, I've seen that we have come to understand that some behaviors that we thought in the past were just trivial uh, were really quite dangerous and damaging. I've seen that we've come to question cultural assumptions that in many cases have led to blaming victims and led to really lax processes for addressing behavior because we use cultural excuses to forgive or cover or even become complicit with people who are abusive. So I've seen that change in awareness around how the culture needs to change. And, and what is, is not happening fast enough is the structural issues, the structures that keep people from coming forward. Is that happening at all? Slowly, we're starting to examine structures. We're starting to not see the problem as simply a behavioral problem of a few bad apples. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see how it's become part of our systems uh, for evaluating people or not holding people accountable. And so it's starting, but so much more needs to be done. And at the same time, we need to be addressing the harm that has already happened because of that. Yeah, I, I don't know the... the, the um... Yes, I'm hopeful. And I want, and when I get off this talk with you, I want you to be hopeful too. <laughs> well, I, I would like to be. I mean, you know, the, um, the cover of the Atlantic magazine just came out and the the story is the bad guys are winning. Hmm. And it's about global politics. But it also feels to me connected to these these structures you're talking about. Yeah. A thing you write in the book repeatedly is how many of the most powerful men in America have been accused of some form of sexual harassment or assault. And they're all still... They're all still there for the most part. Right, and, and, the, and because the structures allow them to remain there. And, and that is discouraging, and that's, that's the part that's discouraging. That's what we've got to be about the business of changing. And, and, and if we don't, you know, and I'll just use the, the Senate Judiciary Committee as an example. 1991, I came forward. There was no structure for me really to be heard I mean, there were uh, rules in place that they were not necessarily about getting to the truth, but they were more about moving the process along. There were witnesses that were not called who should have been called, uh, and, you know, there seemed to be nothing that could be done about it. And that was 1991. We know what the outcome was. Now, fast forward, it's 2018, and Christine Blasey Ford comes forward. Now... Some of the same people are still there. But it, if you look at the Senate Judiciary Committee, it wasn't that all-white, all-male panel. You know, there were people of color. There were 
uh, women, you know, they, it, it looked different. The behavior was different that was being described by Christine Blasey Ford, but the connections were obvious. But in, in effect, the same lax process was there. Witnesses weren't called. It should have been called. There was no clear rules of, about how even to come forward. Even though the personnel had changed and, and some of the senators tried to really take a different approach in questioning Christine Blasey Ford than what I got, one of the things that had not changed were the structures. Right. And if you don't change the process, you're going to continue to get the same outcomes. And you think that those processes will eventually change? I, you know, I would have thought they would have changed by now. <laughs> but as far as I know, the Senate Judiciary Committee's processes haven't been changed. So that if tomorrow there's a nominee for a position on one of the federal courts and there is information about the behavior of that nominee, I'm, I'm not sure at all that we won't have the same kind of outcome. And it, um, so that's, that's the reason that I say, you know, think about what needs to change. And that's what I want people to understand, that it's not just that we need to, to acknowledge that the problem exists. We've got to reevaluate our solutions to the problem. And that includes structural and, and systemic change. Well, if you can be hopeful in the face of that, then certainly the rest of us can too. Yes. Well, and I just ask people to believe in something, to really believe that we deserve better that we will all be better off if we can eliminate this problem or at least begin to address it and give another generation coming up a, a fighting chance to get rid of it. I really appreciate you saying that. It's pretty powerful to hear from you. You've been talking and asked about that experience in 1991 for 30 years. And maybe the answer is that there isn't. But as I was preparing for this conversation, I couldn't stop thinking, like, is there anything she hasn't been asked about that? Is there anything that she wishes someone would ask? Is there anything you, you've never gotten a chance to say? Like, is there, is there anything that, that no one's ever asked you about that experience that you wish they would have? Well, I think I answer that in, in believing and that is, it happened, it injured the country, it left us le with less trust and confidence in the Supreme Court, and less confidence in the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, how judges are selected. And no one has said, what are we going to do about it? Nobody has said that. And that's, that's one of the things, you know, that's a question that I answer in believing. What are we going to do about it? Nita Hill, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Seth Kelly, and our intern was Susan Peterson. Thanks to them. Thanks to our friends at MailChimp and Vox for helping to make this show possible. And thanks so much to Anita Hill for taking some time to talk to me. Her book is called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. We'll see you next week. Support for Longform this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.